You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 86 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all, thanks for tuning into the podcast. Last week we started our review of what all happened in 1861, and we wrapped up that episode at the end of June 1861 with Abraham Lincoln's decision to approve Urban McDowell's plan to launch an invasion of Northern Virginia. With the start of this episode, we're going to pick back up right where we left off, so that means we're at the beginning of July 1861. On July 2nd, federal troops under the command of General Robert Patterson crossed the Potomac River at Williamsport, Maryland, with orders to advance against the Confederate force in the Shenandoah Valley and hold it there, while to the east, the main Union army under McDowell moved against Manassas Junction. But as you guys will already know, Patterson ultimately fails miserably in that assignment, and the rebels commanded by Joseph Johnston will successfully slip away from the Shenandoah and will reinforce Beauregard at Manassas on the eve of the war's first big battle. As y'all will recall from the last episode, immediately after the fall of Fort Sumter, Abraham Lincoln had called for a special session of Congress to open on July 4th. Congress had adjourned in March and normally wouldn't convene again until December, so that's why the President had to call for a special session to deal with war measures. When the special session opened on Thursday, July 4th, Lincoln summarized the events that had occurred since he took office. He also asked for increased military expenditures, as well as 400,000 men, as a means for, quote, making this contest a short and decisive one, end quote. On July 5th, George McClellan, who had recently went into the field and joined the federal troops he'd ordered into Western Virginia, wrote to his wife, saying, quote, I shall feel my way and be very cautious, for I recognize the fact that everything requires success in my first operations, end quote. McClellan had already told the War Department that as he personally directed the campaign, he would not move, quote, until I know that everything is ready. End quote, and that he intended to gain victory, quote, by maneuvering rather than by fighting. I will not throw these men of mine into the teeth of artillery and entrenchments if it is possible to avoid it, end quote. Those words, which would have sounded wise and reasonable if they had come from any other officer, were, coming from McClellan, actually foreshadowing of flaws that would undermine his ability to be a successful combat commander. 
On July 5th, out in troubled Missouri, secessionist troops under Governor Claiborne Fox Jackson defeated a federal column led by Brigadier General Franz Siegel at the Battle of Carthage. Casualties in the fight were light. The Union side suffered 13 dead and 31 wounded, while the Missourians had 10 killed and 64 wounded. On July 11th, in New Orleans, J.D.B. DeBoe, the highly influential editor and publisher of the Southern Quarterly Review, celebrated the onset of war with the North, writing, quote, We have been Yankee imitators and worshippers until now, and never learned to walk alone, end quote. As he happily stated that that unhappy situation was at an end, DeBoe declared, quote, We of the South are about to inaugurate a new civilization. We have new and original thought. Negro slavery will be its great controlling and distinctive element, end quote. In western Virginia on July 11th, McClellan's army won a victory at Rich Mountain. Despite hesitation and confusion on McClellan's part, a column of federal troops led by William Rosecrans swept away Confederate resistance on the mountaintop, killing or capturing some 170 men and driving off the remnants of the rebel force. Despite the fact that the battle at Rich Mountain had been won by Rosecrans, the victory made McClellan an instant hero in the North after he telegraphed Washington, proclaiming, quote, Our success is complete and secession is killed in this country, end quote. The Union victory at Rich Mountain meant that Confederate General Richard S. Garnett had to withdraw from his position at nearby Laurel Hill, and during the ensuing retreat, Garnett was killed on July 13th. He was the first general officer to die in the Civil War. With federal troops having withdrawn from the Indian Territory, by mid-July, the Confederacy had concluded treaties with the Creeks, Choctaws, and Chickasaws. The agreements, the work of Confederate agent Albert Pike, were just the first of nine treaties Pike would arrange between the Confederacy and Indian nations. On Tuesday, July 16th, McDowell's Union Army began its advance toward Manassas Junction in northeastern Virginia, about 25 miles from Washington, D.C. The objective was to smash the Confederate troops under Beauregard, who were concentrated around the rail station, and then to move on to Richmond and capture the rebel capital. The next day, the 17th, as McDowell's Army slowly advanced, P.G.T. Beauregard wired Richmond that he had, quote, fallen back on the line of Bull Run near Manassas, end quote. That same day, Joseph Johnston was ordered to slip away from the Shenandoah Valley and bring his army eastward to reinforce Beauregard. On Thursday, the 18th, McDowell's force reached Centerville and then a probe by Brigadier General Daniel Tyler's men led to an engagement at Blackburn's Ford along Bull Run. In a sharp fight, the Confederates repulsed the Yankee reconnaissance, and that combat, along with the realization that the terrain around the Confederate right was more difficult than he expected, led McDowell to change his plans. He had originally intended to flank Beauregard's line to the south, but now the Federal commander cast his eyes northward, seeking for a way to turn the rebels' left flank. The Union army gathered around Centerville, rested and resupplied on the 19th, while McDowell sawed away around the north end of the Confederates' Bull Run line. That delay gave most of Joe Johnston's force, using the railroad, time to arrive from the Shenandoah Valley and reinforce Beauregard's army. 
Johnston himself arrived at Manassas Junction on Saturday the 20th, and at a late-night conference, Beauregard laid out his plan to attack the Yankees' left on Sunday morning. Oddly, if the Confederates had indeed attacked to the south the next morning, while the Federals assaulted in the north at the same time, it would have resulted in both armies going in a circle. But Beauregard's attack was never launched, due to confusing orders and poor staff work. The first Battle of Manassas opened early on the morning of Sunday, July 21st. It was the first major land battle of the Civil War. Early in the battle, the Federals seemed poised to turn the rebels left and achieve a significant victory. But after McDowell failed to exploit that initial success, a steady stream of Confederate reinforcements arrived on the scene, and then the contest raged back and forth with charges and countercharges. By 4 p.m., the tide had turned, and Federal troops were withdrawing from the battlefield, and then the withdrawal degenerated into a confused, panicky retreat all the way back to Washington. Both sides had about 18,000 men actually engaged at First Manassas. Union losses were 460 killed, 1,120 wounded, and 1,300 missing, while Confederate casualties were 387 killed, 1,580 wounded, and 13 missing. While a significant tactical victory and boost for Southern morale, the battle actually didn't do much to change the overall strategic situation since the Confederates were unable to follow up their victory with an advance on Washington. On July 22nd, the day after the battle, the Confederate Congress in Richmond called for a day of Thanksgiving to be observed across the South, while in Washington, a telegram went out to Western Virginia, summoning George McClellan to come and take command of the defeated Union Army that was limping back into its camps around the District of Columbia and Alexandria. Also on the 22nd and on the following day, President Lincoln signed two bills authorizing the enlistments of a total of one million three-year volunteers. As the defeated federal soldiers retreated back into Washington, a U.S. patent office clerk named Clara Barton witnessed firsthand the lack of medical supplies and inadequate hospital facilities for treating the wounded, so she decided to organize relief aid. Quickly, donations and supplies came pouring in, and she was soon head of a highly successful relief organization. After the Civil War, Clara Barton would go on to found the American Red Cross in 1881. And last but not least, on July 22nd, the House of Representatives overwhelmingly passed the Crittenden Resolution, which announced the war was being waged, quote, to defend and maintain the supremacy of the Constitution and to preserve the Union, end quote, and not to interfere with slavery or subjugate the South. Senator Andrew Johnson of Tennessee would introduce a similarly worded resolution that would pass the Senate three days later. On July 23rd, McClellan called at the White House and then attended a swirl of conferences and inspections. That night, he wrote to his wife, saying, quote, President, Cabinet, General Scott, and all deferring to me, by some strange operation of magic, I seem to have become the power of the land. I almost think that were I to win some small success now, I could become dictator or anything else that might please me. But nothing of that kind would please me. Therefore, I won't be dictator. Admirable self-denial. End quote. 
On July 25th, John C. Fremont arrived in St. Louis to take command of Union forces in the Western Theater of the War. Out in the New Mexico Territory on July 27th, Major Isaac Lind abandoned Fort Fillmore near Mesilla in the face of a threat posed by a small band of Confederates led by Captain John R. Baylor. Baylor's force, about 250 strong, had come up from El Paso, Texas. After giving up Fort Fillmore without a fight, Lind would surrender his men to Baylor, leaving a large part of New Mexico open to Confederate invasion. Robert E. Lee had been acting as military advisor to Jefferson Davis, but on July 28th, Lee left Richmond for an inspection of western Virginia, where the Confederates had already suffered serious setbacks. Lee's uncertain command status would hamper his attempts to coordinate the efforts of Confederate forces in the region. On July 29th, Horace Greeley, whose New York newspaper had trumpeted forward to Richmond day after day before 1st Manassas, now wrote to Abraham Lincoln urging negotiations for peace with the South. By the end of July, the Missouri State Convention had already affirmed the loyalty of the state, declared the state offices vacant, and moved the capital to St. Louis. And then on July 31st, the convention formally elected Hamilton R. Gamble as the Unionist governor of Missouri. Meanwhile, pro-Confederate ex-Governor Claiborne Fox Jackson also claimed to represent the deeply divided border state. On August 1st, President Lincoln, having created the post of Assistant Secretary of the Navy, appointed Gustavus Fox to fill the position. Lincoln had been impressed by the can-do attitude that Fox displayed during the Sumter Crisis. To fund the Union's war effort, legislation provided for the United States' first income tax was passed by Congress on August 2nd. The measure called for a 3% tax on incomes over $800. Although passed by both the House and Senate, the tax was never put into operation, although it paved the way for the next bill of its kind in 1862, which called for a graduated income tax. The Confederacy would also collect income taxes. Its first such measure would be passed in 1863, and it was also a graduated income tax. In Washington, on August 6th, the special session of Congress adjourned after approving all acts, orders, and proclamations concerning the Army and Navy that were issued by President Lincoln after his inauguration on March 4th. And on the last day of its session, Congress passed the first Confiscation Act, which, among other provisions, stated that contrabands who had been employed directly by the Confederate armed forces were no longer slaves, but the act otherwise left their status uncertain. On August 8th, in the first of many times that McClellan would hugely overestimate enemy numbers, he reported his belief that, quote, at least 100,000, end quote, Confederate troops under PGT Beauregard were about to attack Washington. But the old General-in-Chief, Winfield Scott, dismissed McClellan's anxieties, and that infuriated the younger man. About Scott, McClellan wrote to his wife, declaring, quote, He is either a dotard or a traitor. I am leaving nothing undone to increase our force, but that confounded old general always comes in the way. He is a perfect imbecile, end quote. 
But Scott was correct. At that time and in the months to come, the Confederates facing McClellan will number fewer than 45,000 soldiers. On Sunday, August 10th, the Battle of Wilson's Creek was fought near Springfield in the rolling hill country of southwest Missouri. Union Brigadier General Nathaniel Lyon had about 5,500 men that he led in a surprise attack on the encampment of Missouri State Guard General Sterling Price and Confederate General Ben McCulloch. The 10,000 Southerners were caught off guard, but quickly rallied and defeated a flanking attack carried out by Franz Siegel, and then they launched a counterattack against Lyon's force on Bloody Hill. Lyon was killed, and the Union force withdrew from the battlefield and retreated back to Springfield, and then pulled all the way back to the railhead at Rolla. Union casualties at Wilson's Creek were 258 killed, 870 wounded, and 180 missing, while the Southerners lost 279 killed and 951 wounded. The bloody battle left southwestern Missouri in the hands of the secessionists and shocked many in the north, since it was another major Confederate success, coming less than a month after First Manassas, and many in the Union were dismayed by the two rebel victories. Also on August 10th, in Hampton Roads, near Fort Monroe, Virginia, aeronaut John LaMontagne ascended in a balloon tethered to the Union vessel Fanny and sketched the location of Confederate positions across the way at Sewell's Point. LaMontagne's sketches are believed to be some of the earliest ever made from an aerial platform. On August 11th, Brigadier General John B. Floyd, lately Secretary of War in President Buchanan's cabinet, assumed command of Confederate troops in the Kanawha Valley of Western Virginia, leading to trouble between Floyd and his new subordinate, former Virginia Governor Henry Wise. The friction between Floyd and Wise would further complicate Robert E. Lee's efforts to coordinate the activities of Confederate forces in Western Virginia. On August 12th, the three federal timberclads, Tyler, Lexington, and Conestoga, arrived at Cairo, Illinois. The timberclads would provide valuable service on the western rivers until the Union's fleet of ironclads was ready for service. On August 15th, Robert Anderson, of Fort Sumter fame and recently promoted to Brigadier General, was named commander of the Union's Department of the Cumberland, consisting of Tennessee and Anderson's home state of Kentucky. Anderson's second-in-command would be William Tecumseh Sherman, who commanded a brigade of volunteers at First Manassas. On August 16th, President Lincoln issued the proclamation forbidding intercourse with rebel states, which, with certain exceptions, barred commercial trade between the Union and the Confederacy. On August 17th, elderly but competent General John E. Wool, a veteran of the War of 1812 and the Mexican-American War, superseded Benjamin Butler in command of Union forces at Fort Monroe, Virginia. Butler would begin to organize a force to attack the Cape Hatteras area on North Carolina's coast. Jefferson Davis, on August 24th, named James Mason of Virginia and John Slidell of Louisiana as Confederate commissioners to Britain and France, respectively. Their assignment was to obtain foreign recognition of Southern independence, to secure European assistance to end the Union's blockade, and to act as purchasing agents to acquire vital supplies from abroad. 
On August 26th, King Kamehameha IV of the Hawaiian Islands proclaimed his country's neutrality in the American conflict. Over August 28th to 29th, a Union amphibious expedition under the command of Flag Officer Silas Stringham and Major General Benjamin Butler attacked and secured Forts Clark and Hatteras, which guarded Hatteras Inlet, North Carolina. The inlet had been an important haven for Confederate privateers and blockade runners, but in Union hands, the inlet had the potential for becoming a staging area for operations against the North Carolina coastal region. The victory at Hatteras Inlet, the first noteworthy Union victory of the war, boosted northern morale, which had been shaken by the defeats at Manassas and Wilson's Creek. On August 30th, from his headquarters at St. Louis, Department Commander John C. Fremont issued a proclamation declaring martial law throughout Missouri, confiscated the property of all Missourians who supported the Confederacy, and declared their slaves emancipated. While Fremont's proclamation freeing slaves was supported by abolitionists and radical Republicans, it offended border state unionists and threatened to upset Abraham Lincoln's delicate efforts to keep Kentucky from joining the Confederacy. Lincoln would write, quote, I think to lose Kentucky is nearly the same as to lose the whole game, end quote, and the president will shortly order Fremont to rescind his proclamation. On the last day of August, the Confederate Congress adjourned in Richmond, and the government announced the appointment of five full generals, who were, in order of seniority, Samuel Cooper, Albert Sidney Johnston, Robert E. Lee, Joseph Johnston, and P.G.T. Beauregard. Cooper's name is probably unfamiliar to a lot of people, since he would never exercise field command during the Civil War. But he had served as Adjutant General of the U.S. Army, and would serve in that capacity for the Confederate Army. Joe Johnston was deeply offended at his placement on the list, and his resentment would poison his relationship with Jefferson Davis. On September 1, 1861, the first school in the South for contrabands was started by Mary Chase, a freed woman of Alexandria, Virginia. On September 3rd, under orders from Episcopal Bishop turned General Leonidas Polk, Confederate forces led by Gideon Pillow entered neutral Kentucky from Tennessee and occupied Columbus along the Mississippi River. That act ended Kentucky's neutrality and drove the vital border state to side with the Union. Three days later, federal troops under Brigadier General Ulysses S. Grant would move from, a, from Cairo, Illinois, to occupy Paducah and secure the mouths of the Tennessee and Cumberland Rivers. And then on September 9th, the Confederates, commanded by Simon Bolivar Buckner, will occupy Bowling Green. The Battle of Carnifex Ferry took place on September 10th along the Gauley River in western Virginia. The battle followed a series of summer skirmishes between Union and Confederate forces for control of the Kanaw Valley. At Carnifex Ferry, William Rosecrans Federals attacked John Floyd's Confederates, but the action came to a close as darkness fell over the battlefield. Knowing he could not count on reinforcements from his bitter rival, Henry Wise, Floyd withdrew under cover of night. Union casualties were 27 killed and 103 wounded, while the Confederates suffered no deaths and only 20 wounded. 
The subsequent joint retreat of Floyd's and Wise's Confederates' forces solidified Union control of the Kanawha and Ohio River Valleys for the remainder of the war. On September 11th, in another area of western Virginia, Robert E. Lee opened his five-day-long campaign to capture Cheat Mountain from the Federals. Possession of Cheat Mountain allowed control of important nearby passes and the Stanton and Parkersburg Turnpike. Lee's plan called for an advance by five separate columns of Confederate troops, but difficult terrain and increasingly foul weather hampered the rebel units trying to carry out Lee's complicated plan. And then the attack force tasked with taking the summit of Cheat Mountain failed due to poor intelligence and hesitancy by that commander. After their failure, the Confederates withdrew from the area, and other subsequent rebel operations in western Virginia proved equally fruitless. By the end of October, Lee will be recalled to Richmond, having achieved little. Frustrated by Union successes in western Virginia, caustic southern newspaper editors would bestow the uncomplimentary nickname Granny Lee on the luckless general because of his age and apparent lack of audacity while campaigning in the mountains. Lee will write to his wife, saying, quote, I am sorry that the movement of our armies cannot keep pace with the expectations of the editors of the papers, end quote. While Robert E. Lee's Cheat Mountain campaign was going on in western Virginia, out of Missouri, the siege of Lexington began on September 12th. After the Battle of Wilson's Creek, Ben McCulloch's Confederates withdrew back into Arkansas, but Sterling Price took his Missouri State Guardsmen north, where he laid siege to the Union force holding the Missouri River town of Lexington. The siege climaxed with the Battle of the Hemp Bales on September 19th. Price's Missourians suffered 25 killed and 72 wounded, while inflicting 39 killed and 120 wounded on the Union forces, as well as taking more than 2,000 prisoners. But a subsequent advance from St. Louis by an overwhelming Federal force meant Price and his state guardsmen couldn't hold Lexington for very long after their victory, and they were forced to fall back to southwest Missouri. On September 15th, Albert Sidney Johnston assumed command of the Confederate armies in the West, superseding Leonidas Polk. On that same day, in Washington, Abraham Lincoln issued a statement defending the federal government's action in arresting, without charges, allegedly disloyal citizens of Maryland, including the mayor of Baltimore and secessionist members of the state legislature. Lincoln said, quote, the public safety renders it necessary that the grounds of these arrests should at present be withheld, but at the proper time they will be made public. Of one thing the people of Maryland may rest assured, that no arrest has been made or will be made not based on substantial and unmistakable complicity with those in armed rebellion against the government of the United States. End quote. Those Marylanders taken into custody would be released a few at a time on parole or after taking an oath. By late November, all those who were arrested will have been freed. Down in the Gulf of Mexico on September 17th, Union forces occupied Ship Island, which lay between New Orleans and Mobile. Ship Island would be developed into a base for the Gulf Blockading Squadron, as well as a staging point for the Federal's campaign against New Orleans. 
On September 19th, a Confederate force led by Brigadier General Felix K. Zollicoffer advanced from East Tennessee into Kentucky and dispersed Federal troops around Barbersville. That action completed the setting up of the three major positions in the Confederates' defensive line in the war's western theater. They were Columbus, Kentucky, on the Mississippi River, Bowling Green, Kentucky, north of Nashville, Tennessee, and then to the east, the area around the Cumberland Gap. A fellow with the fine name of Ainsworth Rand Spofford had been working as a correspondent for the Cincinnati Commercial, but in September 1861, he took a job as assistant librarian of Congress. On the 22nd, he sent one last dispatch to the newspaper, writing, quote, At the top of the finished portion of the Capitol Dome, which is being replaced, there's a fine opportunity for viewing the encampments of our army and the locality of the advanced lines of the enemy. The dome is visited daily by thousands of people, including nearly all the newly arrived soldiers. Spofford then went on to comment on one of the challenges faced by the rapidly expanding volunteer army. He said, quote, There's a scarcity of surgeons in the army, and some are graciously volunteering to attend the numerous cases of illness. Doctor and recently appointed Librarian of Congress, J.G. Stevenson, has generously devoted a large share of his time to these sufferers, a temporary hospital for whom has been established in the patent office. End quote. The month of September came to a quiet end. Jefferson Davis was disputing with Joe Johnston over reinforcements, supplies, strategy, and policy in general. Abraham Lincoln was concerned with Fremont in Missouri, with stabilizing the situation in Kentucky, and with the rising impatience in the North over the inaction of McClellan's Army of the Potomac. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. On Tuesday, October 1st, 1861, Jefferson Davis went up to Centerville, Virginia, to hold a strategy conference with Joseph Johnston and P.G.T. Beauregard. 
All three men agreed that, despite rising public pressure for offensive action against the Yankees, the Confederate Army in northeastern Virginia did not have sufficient strength or logistical support to make such a move, and therefore had to remain on the defensive, awaiting the inevitable Union attack next spring. On October 3rd, Louisiana Governor Thomas Moore issued a proclamation banning the shipment of cotton from the rest of the South to New Orleans, ostensibly because of the tightening Union blockade, but really Moore's action was part of the unofficial Southern embargo designed to withhold cotton from Europe and in that way force force nations such as Britain and France to grant official recognition to the Confederacy. On October 7th, as some in the North were growing restless at the lack of aggressive action by George McClellan and the Army of the Potomac during the fine fall campaigning weather, Horace Greeley published an editorial defending Little Mac against other newspapers, quote, which events impatience at General McClellan's inactivity, end quote. But Greeley's opinion of McClellan would soon change for the worse, something that had already occurred among some Republican members of Congress who had started to wonder if the general's association with the Democratic Party affected his enthusiasm for prosecuting the war. Robert Anderson, fatigued and unwell since his experience at Fort Sumter, on October 8th turned over command of the Department of the Cumberland to William Tecumseh Sherman. In Washington on that same day, British correspondent William Howard Russell called on McClellan, but was told by an aide that the general was tired and had gone to bed. Russell wrote in his diary that he was told McClellan had, quote, sent the same message to the president who came inquiring after him ten minutes before, end quote. Russell went on to write, quote, This poor president, surrounded by such scenes and trying with all his might to understand strategy, naval warfare, and all the technical details of slaying. He runs from one house to another, armed with plans, papers, reports, recommendations, sometimes good-humored, never angry, occasionally dejected, and always a little fussy. But for all that, there have been many more courtly presidents who, in a similar crisis, would have displayed less capacity, honesty, and plain dealing than Abraham Lincoln. End quote. On October 12th, under cover of a dark and stormy night, James Mason and John Slidell sailed from Charleston, South Carolina, and successfully evaded the Union blockade on the coastal packet Gordon. Also on October 12th, the Confederates' new ironclad ram Manassas steamed down the Mississippi River from New Orleans to challenge the Federal warships blockading Head of Passes. Accompanied by five armed steamers and two tugs pulling fire rafts, the Manassas attacked under cover of darkness and caused much consternation and confusion, if little damage, among the Union vessels. Although the episode caused considerable embarrassment to the U.S. Navy, it didn't change the strategic situation, since, although they withdrew from head of passes, the Yankee warships continued to patrol the Mississippi's outlets into the Gulf of Mexico, and the blockade steadily increased its effectiveness. On Monday, October 21st, the Battle of Ball's Bluff took place along the Potomac River near Leesburg, Virginia. After McClellan suggested Brigadier General Charles Stone make a, quote, slight demonstration, end quote, in support of another federal column advancing toward Leesburg, 
Stone ordered a raid across the Potomac from his division's positions on the Maryland side of the river. Ultimately, each side committed about 1,700 men to the battle at Ball's Bluff, but the Confederates aggressively counterattacked and they were able to collapse the precarious Union position along the river and drive the panicked Yankees down the steep bluff and into the Potomac. During the fighting, Colonel Edward Baker, a sitting U.S. Senator from Oregon and a personal friend of Abraham Lincoln's, was killed. Total Union casualties were 49 killed, 158 wounded, and 553 taken prisoner, while the Confederates reported their losses as 33 killed and 115 wounded. The crushing defeat at Ball's Bluff stunned the North. Many in the Army blamed Baker, who displayed personal courage but not much military sense during the battle. Radical Republicans in Congress, however, made Baker into a hero and then used the Joint Committee on the Conduct of the War to make Stone into the scapegoat for the defeat. The committee's larger purpose in persecuting Stone was to make him an example of what would happen to generals deemed politically unreliable who failed to prosecute the war with sufficient enthusiasm. On the morning of October 23rd, Stonewall Jackson, then encamped at Centerville, Virginia, with the rest of the idle Confederate Army, received orders naming him commander of a new military district, the Valley District. Jackson wouldn't leave for the Shenandoah Valley until the first week of November, but the day of his leave-taking he bid a heartfelt goodbye to the Stonewall Brigade, reminding the men that they had always been the first brigade in every formation in which they had served. And then he told them, quote, You are the first brigade in the affections of your general, and I hope by your future deeds and bearing that you will be handed down to posterity as the first brigade in this, our second war of independence. May God bless you. Farewell. End quote. The Stonewall Brigade would actually join Jackson in the Shenandoah Valley soon enough, although Jackson didn't know that would happen when he left Centerville. But anyway... On October 24th, President Lincoln wrote orders to be carried to St. Louis, relieving John C. Fremont of command in the West and putting General David Hunter temporarily in his place. And then also on October 24th, the final segment of the Transcontinental Telegraph was completed by Western Union. The new segment ran from Denver in the Colorado Territory to Sacramento out in California, and it linked earlier completed lines so that a giant step forward was taken in communications between East and West. The completion of the transcontinental telegraph meant there was little need any longer for the Pony Express, and so in October of 1861, that unique mail delivery service was shut down after a brief but dramatic 18-month existence. The Pony Express had had more than 100 stations, 80 riders, and 400 to 500 horses along its 2,000-mile route from Missouri to California. The route was extremely dangerous, but nevertheless, only one mail delivery was ever lost. On October 25th, the keel of the federal ironclad USS Monitor was laid down at Greenpoint, Long Island. The brainchild of Swedish-born engineer, inventor, and naval architect John Erickson, the revolutionary new warship was being built in response to reports that the Confederates were building a blockade-busting ironclad at Norfolk, Virginia, using the hull of the salvaged steam frigate USS Merrimack. Also on October 25th, three powerful Republican senators met with McClellan at the home of Postmaster General Montgomery Blair. 
the Republicans pressed Little Mac to put the Army of the Potomac into motion and attack the Confederates, but McClellan sidestepped, blaming General-in-Chief Winfield Scott for the Army's inaction. By this time, relations between Scott and McClellan have soured to the point that their disagreements have become public knowledge, so Little Mac is able to successfully convince the Republicans who are pestering him that what they really need to do is go to the president and lobby for the old general-in-chief's retirement. McClellan covets the Army's top spot for himself and longs to see old Winfield Scott put out to pasture. He writes to his wife, saying, quote, Until that is accomplished, I can effect but little good. He is ever in my way. End quote. On October 30th, PGT Beauregard joined Joe Johnston in Jefferson Davis's doghouse. The Confederate president took Beauregard to task for permitting portions of his controversial report on First Manassas to be printed in the newspapers, writing to the vain Creole that, quote, it seemed to be an attempt to exalt yourself at my expense, end quote. On the first day of November 1861, Winfield Scott's retirement became official and a messenger from the White House brought George McClellan the news he had been eagerly anticipating. The President's message read, quote, I have designated you to command the whole army. You will therefore assume this enlarged duty at once, conferring with me as far as necessary, end quote. Little Mac's scheming has paid off and he is now General-in-Chief of the Armies of the United States. On November 2nd, in Missouri, John C. Fremont received Lincoln's order, relieving him of command and placing David Hunter in charge of the department. The still influential Fremont's removal angers radical Republicans, who almost immediately begin to badger the president to find another command for the Pathfinder. Jefferson Davis, on November 5th, named Robert E. Lee to command the newly created Confederate Department of South Carolina, Georgia, and East Florida. The transfer removed Lee from Richmond and the storm of criticism that continued over the Confederate military's failures in western Virginia. On Wednesday, November 6th, voters throughout the South went to the polls and elected Jefferson Davis president of the Confederate States of America, thereby changing his status from provisional president to president. Voters also elected members of the first regular, not provisional, Confederate Congress. On November 7th, U.S. Navy Flag Officer Samuel DuPont and Brigadier General Thomas W. Sherman led a powerful joint task force into Port Royal Sound, South Carolina, and began operations to secure the Hilton Head Port Royal area. Among the Union warships that bombarded the rebel forts protecting the Sound was the USS Pocahontas, captained by Commander Percival Drayton, a South Carolinian who remained loyal to the Union. The Confederate defenders his ship fired upon were under the command of his older brother, Thomas Drayton, who was soon forced to order a retreat. The Federal victory at Port Royal Sound was a significant achievement. The victory not only provided a much-needed boost to northern morale after the debacle at Ball's Bluff, but it also provided the Union Navy with an ideal base for the South Atlantic Blockading Squadron. On that same day, the 7th, the Battle of Belmont took place out in Missouri, along the banks of the Mississippi River, directly opposite the important Confederate fortified position at Columbus, Kentucky. The engagement was Ulysses S. Grant's first combat operation of the Civil War. 
Belmont, though, was not a battle that Grant could point to with any particular pride, since his force seemed to have the enemy defeated, but then was routed by a Confederate counterattack. Nevertheless, Belmont brought Grant to Abraham Lincoln's attention, since the president was looking for generals who would show some initiative and take the fight to the enemy. The Battle of Belmont was costly for both sides. There were between 550 and 600 Union casualties, including about 90 dead, while Confederate losses were about 640, including 105 dead. On November 8th, General-in-Chief McClellan agreed with William Tecumseh Sherman's request that he be relieved from command of the Department of the Cumberland. Sherman had found himself unable to cope with the myriad challenges that accompanied high command. Don Carlos Buell replaced Sherman as department commander. Also on November 8th, there was drama on the high seas off Cuba as Captain Charles Wilkes, commanding the USS San Jacinto, intercepted the British mail steamer Trent and seized the Confederate commissioners Mason and Slidell. Wilkes' rash action touched off the so-called Trent Affair, which took the United States and Britain to the brink of war. Cooler heads prevailed, however, and the Lincoln administration agreed to release the Southerners. And thanks to several of you who contacted us after that episode to tell us that in Texas, they pronounce San Jacinto incorrectly with a hard J, so hopefully we got it right this time. Anyway... Also on November 8th, Robert E. Lee arrived at Savannah, Georgia to assume his new duties defending the Confederacy's South Atlantic coastline, only to find that the Federals had attacked Port Royal Sound just the day before. So within weeks of assuming command, Lee, short of men, supplies, and arms and ammunition, Lee would order the abandonment of the scattered rebel shoreline defenses and directed that the defenders pull back away from the coast except at Charleston, South Carolina, and Savannah. This would be an attempt to counter the Union's ability to launch amphibious operations at any point along the coast. Lee planned to shift from a static perimeter defense to a more mobile defense based on the use of interior lines and railroads. In early November in East Tennessee, Unionist citizens staged an uprising against Confederate authorities. The Mountaineers burnt railroad bridges and harassed Confederate outposts, forcing the area commander, General Felix Zollicoffer, to call for reinforcements. Throughout the war, the Unionists of East Tennessee would carry out both guerrilla and conventional military operations, forcing the Confederate authorities to declare martial law and allocate precious manpower and resources to secure the region. On November 9th, the War Department made some important changes in the Union Army's command structure. One of the most important moves was the appointment of Henry Wager Halleck to command the new Department of Missouri, where Halleck was expected to clean up the mess left by John C. Fremont. Lincoln had been dropping by McClellan's headquarters near the White House almost daily to consult with the new General-in-Chief. Little Mac had grown to resent these visits, viewing them as a waste of time and unwanted intrusions. On the evening of November 13th, the President, along with his Secretary, John Hay, and the Secretary of State, William Seward, called unannounced on McClellan, but learned he was at a wedding. When the General returned an hour later, he went directly to bed, despite being told Lincoln was waiting for him. 
The president, secretary of state, and Hay waited another half hour before a servant told them McClellan had gone to bed. Hay was furious at the slight to Lincoln, but as they walked back to the White House, the president said that it was, quote, better at this time not to be making points of etiquette and personal dignity, end quote. Significantly, though, Lincoln started to summon McClellan to the executive mansion when he wished to see him, something the general would find both inconvenient and irritating. After one such consultation four days later, on November 17th, Little Mac will write to his wife, quote, I found the original gorilla about as intelligent as ever. What a specimen to be at the head of our affairs, end quote. On November 18th, the Confederate Congress opened a new session in Richmond. The next day, Jefferson Davis would address the assembly, declaring, quote, Liberty is always one where there exists the unconquerable will to be free, end quote. Davis will deliver a generally optimistic report as he reviews the events of the past year. On November 19th, the Battle of Round Mountain took place in the Indian Territory between pro-Union Creeks and Seminoles and Texas Calvary and pro-Confederate Cherokees. It was the first of three encounters between the groups, and by the end of the year, the pro-Union band of Creeks and Seminoles would be forced to flee to Kansas. On November 21st, Judah P. Benjamin moved from Attorney General to Secretary of War in Jefferson Davis's cabinet. Benjamin replaced Leroy Walker. Jefferson Davis will go through quite a few Secretaries of War before the end comes in 1865. Thomas Bragg, brother of General Braxton Bragg, will succeed Benjamin as Attorney General. On November 28th, the Confederate Congress admitted Missouri as the 12th Confederate state after a southern-leaning rump state legislature met at Neosho, Missouri on November 3rd and adopted an ordinance of secession. Despite that action, Missouri would, in fact, remain in the Union, and its pro-Confederate state officials would be forced to establish a government in exile outside the state for most of the war. Nevertheless, the Confederacy would add a star to its flag to represent Missouri. On December 1st, 1861, Secretary of War Simon Cameron included a paragraph in his annual departmental report officially advocating emancipation of the contrabands who made their way into Union lines. But Abraham Lincoln, who was still deeply concerned over maintaining the loyalty of the border states, ordered copies of the report already in circulation to be confiscated and told Cameron to delete the provocative passage. That started another round of protests from radical Republicans and abolitionists who were still upset over Lincoln's action with regard to Fremont's Emancipation Proclamation. The second session of the 37th U.S. Congress got underway in Washington on Tuesday, December 3rd. In the first of his annual messages to Congress, Abraham Lincoln recommended that steps be taken to colonize the contrabands who had come into Union lines, along with any free blacks who wished to emigrate. The president, struggling to wage a war for the survival of the Union, but looking ahead to reconstruction of the divided nation, in which a majority of whites, both North and South, feared the consequences of emancipation, 
Lincoln turned to an idea first embraced in 1817 when the American Colonization Society was established to raise funds for sending free blacks to Africa. The society was concerned that racial prejudice would prevent freed blacks from participating in American life. And so in 1821, the society purchased land and founded the Republic of Liberia on the West African coast. During the first three years of the Civil War, the Lincoln administration would also seek other overseas areas for settling free blacks, including Haiti. In response to this presidential request on December 3, 1861, Congress would set aside $600,000 to help finance voluntary emigration, yet colonization held no appeal for the overwhelming majority of blacks who were already generations removed from Africa. On December 10th, Kentucky became the 13th state claimed by the Confederacy when the Confederate Congress recognized the Bluegrass State's pro-Confederate provisional government. Although the Confederate flag would henceforth bear 13 stars, Kentucky, like Missouri, would remain in the Union. And in speeches, Jefferson Davis would never refer to 13 Confederate states, but only to 11. On December 13th, in western Virginia, Federal troops, led by Brigadier General Robert Milroy, moved against Confederate forces at Camp Allegheny, where the Stanton and Parkersburg turnpikes intersected the crowning ridge of the Allegheny Mountains. The Confederate commander, Colonel Edward Johnson, repulsed the Yankee attack, and as a result, was not only promoted to Brigadier General, but earned the nickname Old Allegheny. Union losses in the battle were 20 killed, 106 wounded, and 10 missing or captured. Confederate losses were 20 killed, 98 wounded, and 28 missing or captured. On December 16th, Stonewall Jackson led a Confederate column out of Winchester in the Shenandoah Valley, headed north for the Potomac River. Jackson's plan was to destroy Dam No. 5 along the Chesapeake and Ohio Canal, and in that way cripple the waterway along which western coal was transported to Washington, D.C., Over the next several days, some mostly harmless skirmishing took place as Jackson's men succeeded in damaging the dam, but after the Confederates withdrew, the damage was almost immediately repaired by the Federals. December 24, 1861 was the first Christmas Eve of the war, and for many households in both the North and the South, it was a sad occasion as thousands upon thousands of husbands, sons, brothers, fathers, and sweethearts were now serving in the military and far from home. And the next day, Christmas Day, many a soldier or sailor on some far-off post or at camp or on ship dreamt of home, wishing he were pulling up a seat at Christmas dinner surrounded by loved ones. On Friday, December 27th, Representative Alfred Ely of New York arrived in Washington from Richmond, where he had been a prisoner since his capture in July while a civilian spectator at the First Battle of Manassas. As 1861 drew to a close, Confederate and Union soldiers were settling in for the winter and building cabins or other quarters in their encampments. In Washington, Abraham Lincoln agonized over the inactivity of the Army of the Potomac and pondered his increasingly difficult relationship with McClellan. In Richmond, Jefferson Davis was feuding with Joe Johnston and Beauregard, but the Confederacy had survived the year, although dangers still threatened the southern slaveholding republic from every side. 
Everyone, both north and south, wondered what 1862 would bring. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is The Longest Night, A Military History of the Civil War by David J. Eicher. Eicher's book isn't perfect, but it is, we think, the best one-volume military history of the Civil War out there. Anyway, as always, you can find all of our book recommendations at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.blogspot.com. And then we have a couple of donators to thank this week. Thanks to Mindy C. from Pennsylvania and Neville H. from Australia for their donations. Rich and I appreciate your support. And thanks to all you guys who are still leaving us those five-star ratings and reviews on iTunes. Those are great, and they help other people discover the podcast on iTunes. And even if you don't use iTunes, you can still check us out on Facebook and Twitter. There are links to both sites on the website, and once you find the podcast on Facebook, don't forget to like us. All right, so I think that's it. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. We hope you'll join us next time when we'll start making our way through 1862. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.